Welcome to part three of our four-part Prohibition Whiskeymentary on the Whiskey Tangent Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Ed. And today we're going to be talking about what happened during the years between 1926 and 1933 to cause the downfall and ultimate failure and repeal of Prohibition's noble experiment. But first, Ed is here to start us off by recapping part two, in which we focused on the events of the first half of Prohibition itself. Right. And so what we see is once Prohibition goes into effect, there's a ton of unintended consequences that lead it towards repeal. Right. So they manifest themselves right in the beginning, 1920, 21, 22, 23. We see the elements of them, but they really start to gain steam, particularly when we look at organized crime, which immediately sees an opportunity in prohibition to make huge profits. And we see people losing their jobs, right? As the distilleries closed, as the brewers closed, there's no one that's making the beer and the whiskey. So you think, well, that's not that large amount of people, but there's no one making the wood barrels to store the beer and the whiskey. There's nobody driving the trucks to deliver all that beer and whiskey and vodka and gin and all the products around. There's right. no stores that are employing people to sell the bottles. There's no saloons that have people bartending and cooking food and sweeping up. So literally hundreds of thousands of jobs, millions of jobs disappeared overnight because of prohibition with no real plan to reallocate them. Right. And the state of American whiskey at the height of prohibition, well, in a word, it was wheezing as if its face were being held down inside the poison spewing stacks of the industrial revolution oh god That's so graphic <laughs> of the uh, roughly 3,000 distilleries that existed in america before prohibition only six had been given a legal standing to produce whiskey during it, and nearly all the rest were shuttered and dismantled unbelievable yeah. six how do you get six out of 3,000 i know those six were Stitzel, Glenmore, Shenley, Brown Foreman, Frankfurt, and National Distillers, and they were selling whiskey to licensed druggists, who in turn sold it to customers lucky enough or savvy enough or connected enough to get a doctor's prescription. This legitimate whiskey was prized for its high quality, because unless you could get your soot-smeared hands on some smuggled Canadian, Irish, or Scotch whiskey, anything else was likely to be poorly made and completely unaged. The American whiskey being made during Prohibition was far inferior to the delicious liquor that had been crafted at the turn of the 20th century, just a mere 30 years before, with bootleggers using ingredients such as iodine and tobacco to fake barrel aging. And even worse, the stories of going blind and even dying after drinking bootleg moonshine are true, which we also talked about, mm -hmm. because these amateur distillers use the toxic heads and the distasteful tails of the whiskey distilling process instead of just the delicious drinkable hearts. Mm. So as Prohibition neared its end, despite the surprising fact that whiskey and other hard liquors had actually become more popular and more socially acceptable, the legitimate whiskey industry in America was nearly dead, and most of the people who drank whiskey without a prescription risked ending up much the same. 
Right. And so you think over 6 million prescriptions were written by doctors to pharmacists to fill. And so think about the quality of that liquor, because if you're one of those six distilleries, you could go to one of your former colleagues who just got shuttered and buy what you wanted at pennies on the dollar from their rickhouse that might be 8, 10, 12, 15 years age just sitting there. Yeah. And you could throw it into your own inventory. And so most of the stuff coming out was high quality hooch. Yeah. <laughs> if you had a prescription, you were drinking really well right and of those i think brown foreman is the only one that rings a bell to me as far as still being very relevant today a huge company yeah uh, stitzel became somebody as well Um, yeah correct and we'll do more research for the next part about who survived and what they became right the legacy of the prohibition distilleries is something that we're going to talk about in part four right so we came up with five reasons why the idea of repealing an amendment to the constitution where no amendment had ever been repealed before why it picked up steam number five organized crime so they thrived crime soared and tens of thousands of people died from the related violence in cities all across america uh, that's very true over a thousand people died in new york city alone and not to mention it was really sexy in the papers right i mean right. so it's something that the public associated with prohibition with the speakeasies and all that mm-hmm. and One of the big problems with prohibition with organized crime was that the mob had the money and the power to get bigger and bigger. And we mentioned all the people dying in the mob violence. Mm. They had a giant meeting in Atlantic City, New Jersey, (laughs) the state that Scott and I are based in. Capone was there. Walking on the boardwalk. Meyer Lansky was there. Lucky Luciano was there. A who's who of of mob bosses from Chicago to Boston to New York to Philadelphia, all the way down to Baltimore. Baltimore. In the late 20s, they all got together in Lang City and they decided enough killing each other. It's bad for business. Mm-hmm. And there's enough for everybody. And so they use the, what did they say, the, the Federal the Reserve Federal, map. The Federal Reserve Bank map on, to carve up the United States. <laughs> For each of their territories. It started to turn the public opinion against prohibition. Because arguing against prohibition in the beginning was like arguing against drunk driving, you know, blood levels today. Right. It was a moral issue. 0.08, that's too low. So what, you're in favor of people drinking and driving? What are you, an asshole? (laughs) So it's like the same thing with prohibition. Like, oh, no, like we we should be allowed to drink. Oh, you like people beating their wives and being unemployable? And basically it's a sin. And so it was very difficult to get people to go against prohibition because prohibition had such a moral high ground. Yeah, and you had all these uh, sweet little old ladies sitting outside these saloons praying. How can you really go against them? Except, of course, for Carrie Nation, who had an axe and then she was smashing up everything. But, you know, she was the exception that proved the rule. Number four, rich people and women got fed up. So, for example, John D. Rockefeller Jr., one of the richest people in American history, a lifetime non-drinker, by the way, contributed close to three quarters of a million dollars to the Anti-Saloon League in favor of their prohibition movement. He quickly switched over his support to repeal because of all the problems he believed, the um, unintended consequences that Scott explained to us. Mm. He saw them and said, no, no, this is a disaster. He was a very smart man. He realized right away that everything was coming out opposite of what they thought would happen. Right. And so he quickly pulled his support, as did uh, the DuPont family in Delaware, and they led something called the Association Against Prohibition. 
Yeah, there was also uh, Pauline Sabin, an heiress, who was a Republican and had actually served on the committee to elect Herbert Hoover, who was a dry politician and who was elected in a landslide in 1926. And she started the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform. Right. A very well-known New York socialite. Her husband was an owner of one of the big financial bank trusts. I think her, was it her uncle started Morton Saul? Correct. And yeah. she herself was an heiress from another company that her father had started. She was well known and she had big parties and they and they liked to drink and all that. And basically she was offended by the hypocrisy. The, yeah. you know, she said the same congressional leaders that would speak against drinking and vote against it would show up at her parties expecting a drink at dinner. Mm-hmm. On top of that, she viewed prohibition as dangerous as well as hypocritical, mainly because of the apparent decline of temperate drinking. So think about this, right? You come home at night, you want to have a drink, you have a drink. But what if you go somewhere this is your one chance to drink for the month yeah it's true people were binging as much as they could it was like everyone was in college <laughs> the whole nation was in college <laughs> right just and imagine it was their first that. time drinking right so but honestly that's what she's talking about too like people were drinking in an undignified manner um of course women never drank in saloons but they did in speakeasies so right. in a way women gained some liberation during prohibition yeah and that helped bring more and more women over to the wet side if you will and watered down the temperate movement which was based on a very large majority of women right because so not only was she upset about the hypocrisy she was also upset that the women christians temperance union felt like they were representing all women in America. They weren't. Right. And at first, if you went against them, then you were a terrible mother, a terrible wife, and you hated God, and you loved sex and drugs and alcohol. Number three, farmers got fed up too. Farmers who fought for prohibition now fought for repeal because of the negative effects that it had on the agriculture business. And you have to remember that the the South and the small towns were really for prohibition originally. The agricultural South. Nebraska was a big dry state too. All Nebraska grows is corn. Right. As in for corn whiskey, anybody? Anybody? Yeah. You have groups that are making barley and hops and rye and wheat Mm -hmm. and corn, funneling it toward either the brewers or distillers for their whole family history. Right. We've and, talked about many times on this podcast yeah. about the history of the distilleries and the, uh, like rye whiskey and whiskey in America is that the, one of the reasons why they did this was because it was easier to transport all of the grain right. that they were growing. Exactly. So it's baffling to me. Did anybody sit down before Prohibition passed and look at how much agriculture was used on spirits and beers? You know, we talked about how there was near beer and they had malt extract and how they had grape concentrate that you could turn into home wine. Right. But it certainly was wasn't the same as mass producing wine and beer. Absolutely. And not. so the farmers, I don't know why they didn't realize this was going to happen. But remember, if you weren't growing for distilleries, you're like, well, that doesn't affect me. But as your buddies go out of business, there's the unintended consequences of, you know, now you're forced to grow certain things that you might not have wanted to grow and that your land isn't really set to grow or whatever. Number two, the Volstead Act was stupid. The dries are directly related for the failure of prohibition. They f- refuse to compromise. Yeah. They wouldn't compromise on 2 3% beer. Right. They wouldn't let wine be okay. They mandated that everything had to be enforced extremely. As prohibition started to slide, as repeal looked as a possibility, they got Congress to pass the 5 and 10 rules, which basically said that your first offense for drinking was five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Jesus. I mean, that would be terrible today. Yeah. 
I couldn't afford a $10,000 fine now. I have no idea <laughs> how much money that was in 1928, but yeah, I can imagine. Cr- yeah, Christ. Had to be like $100,000. Yeah, wait, let's find out. All right, we'll do the, the, the math for you real quick. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Scott's taking out an, an abacus and uh, a, a sundial. <laughs> a sundial. A, <laughs> and a slide rule. Whatever they used in 1928 to do math, guys. Hey, fellas, <laughs> how, do you, how do you work this thing? Hey, fellas, what's $10,000 in 1928? Let's see. Calculate the value of $10,000 in 1928. 28. Let's see. Um, $145,221 and 39 cents. Right, so there's your fine for drinking one time. We caught you with a bottle of whiskey. Your fine is $145,000 and five years in prison. <laughs> uh, does that make sense to anybody? How is that? I've been sitting in a room of congressmen and passed that. Like, okay. Honestly. Number one, the Great Depression. Uh, Probably the one that spurred this whole thing to the finish line. Absolutely. Prior to the 1920 implementation of the Volstead Act, approximately 14% of federal, state, and local tax revenues were derived from alcohol, commerce, and taxation. Right. The 16th Amendment, instituting the tax on income, passed with great zeal by the Dries, made up a good deal of that revenue. But when the Great Depression hit, of course, income tax revenues plunged. Right. So when you have about 35% of the population in some areas, 40, 45, out of work, do the math. Now, the rich are still rich, but if a factory closes, whoever owned that factory is not getting the income, right? Right. right. And of course, a lot of the upper class had stocks that crashed in the market, so a lot of them lost their fortunes too, yeah. which means they were declaring negative net incomes, which means they paid no taxes either. Mm-hmm. Now, they still might have been wealthy enough to absorb those hits, but they weren't paying tax to the government. And so that's probably, like Scott said, the main reason that we see repeal is because they wanted the tax dollars that whiskey, vodka, gin, rum and beer would give them right and it, don't forget wine right it was always about the money it continued to be about the money and then when the money dried up they went back to it that's right and that's why it's still highly taxed today Interestingly, one of the people who did not get hit by the Great Depression was Al Capone. Right, because Al Capone saw the stock market as a scam, and he told all his people not to invest in it. And what he did was he saw repeal coming, and so he did a great job diversifying his holdings into unions and chauffeurs and factories that made any product you can imagine. He owned 40 or 50 legitimate companies by the time the government caught up with him for tax evasion, and he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Now, he probably could have absorbed that with how strong his family was if he just hadn't got syphilis, right. never treated it properly, started to lose his mind, and eventually died. Yeah. But what really he did it in, and what he said did himself in was publicity. He was a publicity whore. He loved interviews, and he gave press conferences, and he flouted what he did because he felt like bootlegging was honorable because it was an immoral act to outlaw alcohol. Because there's, across the country, a hundred Al Capones. Sure, sure. Who did the exact opposite of him. You know, George Remus is a perfect example. We talked about him in episode two. Mm-hmm. He does get caught. He does get arrested for violations of the Volstead Act. He does get sentenced to two years and still keeps most of his fortune. An interesting story in George Remus is, is while he was in prison, he found out his wife was cheating around on him. Uh-oh. And he chased her down and shot her to death right in front of their daughter. Oh, shit. He defended himself in the trial that followed mm-hmm. and was one of the first people to use temporary insanity oh. as a defense wow. and got off. Did he? Yes, he did. Holy damn. He's like, I've never shot anybody before, but my wife was cheating on me. I got blind rage. Didn't even, you know, didn't know what I was doing. Right. The passionate. Defense. And then uh, eh, I'm okay now. Temporary insanity. I'm good. Yeah. I'm all right now. 
Much better. <laughs> Much better. Sorry I'm, about this. I'm okay. I'm not going to kill anybody yeah, else. Sorry about this, yeah. everybody. Yeah, but don't you fucking cheat on me, yeah. bitch. <laughs> Is it too much? Uh, edit. Maybe edit. Um, so, as a result of all of these factors, in February 1933, Congress passed the 21st Amendment and sent it to the states for ratification. <laughs> Meanwhile, just a month later, the Cullen-Harrison Act, an amendment to the Volstead Act, signed into law by the newly elected Franklin Delano Roosevelt in March 1933, also called the Beer Bill, which increased the legal alcohol level at which beer could be sold from 0.5% to 3.2%. <laughs> Full ratification of the 21st Amendment would only take eight more months, finally repealing the 18th Amendment on December 5th, 1933. In our home state of New Jersey was the fifth state to ratify the repeal, but the surprising state that brought it all home was, Mm. Scott? Utah. Utah was the 36th state to pass the repeal of prohibition. Yeah, I think we talked about it on uh, episode 14, where we did the High West double rye. We talked about the High West distillery in Utah. They have a whiskey called the 36th Vote. That's right. And so, to celebrate the repeal of prohibition... (laughs) We are sipping on a spirit that we feel represents... That time period, which is a little delicious number from Wild Turkey, Wild Turkey 101, which is their flagship product, the one that built the company, really. Mm. They have a rye, too, but this is the bourbon. Yeah, we mentioned in one of these parts uh, about the Rippy Brothers, and they opened a distillery called the Old Hickory Distillery that eventually would become the Wild Turkey Distillery in 1891 near Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Now, this was not one of the distillers that made it through Prohibition, but after Prohibition, it was rebuilt by the Rippy family. And right they- after they had a repeal, so that's why we feel it's relevant. As soon as it was repealed, they tore the boards off yes. and opened it up and started making whiskey. They did, and they sold their bourbon to various wholesalers who bottled it under their own brands, not under like MGP today. Right. I think um, when we did episode 13, we mentioned the Wild Turkey Distillery and the history of it because they make Russell's Reserve, which we featured on that episode. The name Wild Turkey was coined by one of those wholesalers, an executive who worked for them, who brought some of the samples of the whiskey while he was on a turkey hunting trip with his buddies. So they liked it so much, they kept asking for that Wild Turkey bourbon. And in 1942, he created the brand Wild Turkey. Fast forward through a couple distillery sales to different entities, now owned by Pernod Ricard. Yep. Uh, Master distiller Jimmy Russell introduced the higher wild turkey bourbon expression known as 101, which we are drinking today. 101 meaning the proof. Right. One more time. This is a toast towards the end of uh, Prohibition. End of Prohibition. Hey, buddies, we made it. Yeah. Never again. Hey, have a drink, pal. Hey, what's the big idea? Taking our whiskey away. (laughs) So, So what do you smell on this? I mean, to me, it's a very standard bourbon presentation. Absolutely. Very vanilla. Very. Caramel. Mm-hmm. Oak. I mean, sweet on the tongue. For being 101 proof, it's very smooth to me. I think it's smoother than, like, to say, a Knob Creek. Oh, absolutely. Doesn't it doesn't have as nearly as much fire as a Knob Creek would. It's true. And we love Knob Creek, but just making the comparison. Mm-hmm. I will say this. I think that Wild Turkey 101 bourbon and rye are the most underrated spirits on the market. Agreed. For the fact that it's aged seven years, it's a high proof, it's delicious and smooth, but I think that the Wild Turkey 101 gets a bad rap because of the association with regular Wild Turkey. 
101 is delicious. It's in our area, 27 a bottle, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not very expensive at all. Um, the mash bill is 75% corn, 13% rye, 12% malted barley. Very traditional. Very traditional. <laughs> very corn forward. Yeah, the tasting notes on the nose, a strong blend of toffee and caramel mm-hmm. with a hearty amount of alcohol scent. Spice and vanilla provide a nice base with additional layers of toasted oak and butterscotch. See, I didn't get all that on the <coughs> nose. And, and by the way, it wasn't very alcohol forward on my nose either. I didn't find it very peppery or burning on my nose. Right. I, I agree. Caramel and vanilla on yep. the nose and not not actually very alcohol on the nose. A right. palate, uh, sweet notes of vanilla, maple, and cinnamon are nicely contrasted with oakiness, spice, and char. <laughs> I mean, exactly what I was tasting. Yeah. Um, the finish is medium length. Biting finish gives way to a slightly dry aftertaste, which might be why I'm coughing. <laughs> Yeah. It is. A, it is. It, it does. It does kind of get you in the back of throat. I mean, especially for twenty seven dollars, mm-hmm. something like this that we're comparing to Knob Creek, which is at least another ten dollars above that, yeah, right? Absolutely. And I think we're comparing it favorably yes. to Knob Creek. It's a terrific buy. I think we both really like this. I'll tell you right now. People ask me why do you need a glass decanter to hold your whiskey? Yeah. I say for Wild Turkey One Hundred and One. You put it in there, you pour it for your friends, and you watch them ooh-ah-ah ah, over how good it tastes. Right. And then you say, oh, it's wild turkey. Kiss my ass. Right. It's like a blind tasting. Right. Because I'm telling you right now, everyone's going to be like, wow, this is great. And then, you know, they find out it's wild turkey. They got to be like, oh, is it? But too late. You liked it already. <laughs> too late. <laughs> too late. I tricked you, bitch. Too right. Too right. So as part three comes to a close, the good news is we're back to some sense of sanity in America. Mm. Alcohol, whiskey, wine, beer is legal again. They estimate possibly two and a half million jobs were eventually put back in place because of it. Sure. There's your income tax and there's your tax from alcohol. Yeah. It's a great time to be alive in 1933. Right. And Al Capone's in prison. (laughs) Well, you're right. Okay, good. That kind of wraps up part three. Yeah. Tune in with us for the final part, part four, which is coming next week, where Scott and I discuss the legacy of whiskey and America after Prohibition. From 1933 to the present. So it'll be short. Yeah, probably be like five, ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. Not. It's a lot to talk about. All right? I'm All gonna right. say get take a nap before you listen to it. <laughs> and then pour yourself a dram of something special. Absolutely. All right, I'm Ed. I'm Scott. And this is the third part of the whiskey entry signing out. Later. Mr. Dondo is a smile.